This week, Legacy announces RSA, plans to file for Chapter 11 by June 18th. Insys files for Chapter 11 after DOJ opioid settlement. Cloud Peak bid procedures get bankruptcy court approval. Puerto Rico Retirees Committee announces deal with Promisa. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Karen Lung. Later in the episode, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, and Distressed Debt Analyst, Andrew Sung, will go deep on Monotronics International and its RSA. It's Sunday, June 16th. Legacy Reserves announced Friday in an 8K that it has reached a global restructuring agreement with lenders and note holders. The terms of the agreement contemplate a $350 million dip and a $256 million rights offering split between second lien lenders and note holders. The deal includes a restructuring support and lockup agreement with certain of its RBL lenders, second lien term lenders, and note holders. Under the RSA, the company would file for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas on or before this Tuesday, June 18th. Under the plan proposed in the amended and restated RSA, the second lien term lenders would receive 51.4% of the reorganized common stock and note holders 2.5%. The bulk of the remaining equity would be given in exchange for the rights offering totaling $256 million split this way. $190 million for lenders and $66.5 million for note holders, less a 6% fee in the form of equity to backstop parties. The lenders subscribing to the rights would receive 31.4% of the equity and note holders 11. The equity would also be subject to dilution from a 10% management incentive plan. GSO appears poised to appoint all five of the company's non-officer board positions, according to the documents. According to the 8K, GSO is acting as the plan sponsor, in addition to a supporting second lien term lender, and has agreed to backstop all the second lien term loan component of the rights offering, as well as a portion of the note holder component of the rights offering. The plan also provides for the full repayment of the pre-petition first lien RBL. As of May 31st, $562 million was outstanding on the RBL. The plan contemplates rolling $250 million of that into the dip along with $100 million of new money. The full balance of the dip loans and pre-petition RBL claims would be refinanced with exit facilities consisting of a $500 million RBL and an undisclosed amount of a term loan. The 8K states that Perella Weinberg and Tudor Pickering Holt are acting as financial advisors for the company, Sidley Austin is acting as its legal advisor, and Alvarez and Marcel acting as restructuring advisor. PJT Partners is acting as financial advisor to the second lien lenders and Latham & Watkins as legal advisor. Hulhan Loki is acting as financial advisor for the note holder group and Davis Polk & Wardwell as that group's legal advisor. RPA Advisors is acting as financial advisor to Wells Fargo Bank and as administrative agent for the RBL lenders and Oric is acting as legal advisor. Last Monday, opioid manufacturer Insys Therapeutics filed voluntary Chapter 11 petitions with the Bankruptcy Court of Delaware. The filing comes shortly after Insys entered into a $225 million opioid litigation settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice. The settlement was over the marketing of Subsys, a fentanyl delivery spray. Accordingly, the first day declaration of CEO Andrew Long stated that due to, quote, litigation-related claims, the debtors, quote, do not have sufficient liquidity to sustain their operations. 
debtors are seeking approval of bidding procedures for the sale of substantially all of their assets. Pursuant to the company's agreement with the Department of Justice, the United States would have an allowed $243 million unsecured claim in the Chapter 11 cases. That's as the sole remedy for the conduct covered in the pre-petition litigation, as well as any breach by insists of the pre-petition settlement agreement. In addition, the United States has agreed that there will be no successor liability in the case of a Section 363 sale of subsists. The debtors indicate in a footnote to their list of creditors that, quote, absent entry into and approval of such stipulation, the United States has asserted it may have claims against the debtors in amounts excess of $1 billion on account of the covered conduct. The debtors also filed an adversary complaint and preliminary injunction motion, seeking to stay certain actions purportedly within the automatic stays, quote, police powers exception. The debtors also filed a motion for approval of estimation procedures for various claims, including mass torts. According to the first day declaration, despite negotiating potential sale transactions with numerous potential counterparties before the bankruptcy, the debtors, quote, ultimately determined it was prudent to file Chapter 11 at this time, before a stocking horse transaction could be fully negotiated. While the post-petition sale process would consist of potential sales of subsis, syndros, and other assets related to CBD, as well as epinephrine and naloxone, the debtors know that they reserve the right not to sell such assets if they find that bids don't provide sufficient value. During the first day hearing Tuesday, the debtors obtained the requested first day relief after Judge Kevin Gross overruled an objection to the debtors' critical vendor and employee wage motions. The judge described the payments as, quote, appropriate under the circumstances. In addition, the debtors noted that they would not be seeking dip financing or cash collateral, as they intend to use cash on hand and cash from operations during the Chapter 11 cases. A hearing on the bid procedures and estimation procedures motion will be held July 2nd. Cloud Peak debtors had filed a motion seeking court approval of an amended and restated Sale and Plan Support Agreement, or SAPSA, with holders of their 12% secondly notes due 2021 and 6 and 3 eighths unsecured notes due 2024, including an incorporated settlement relating to a potential release of subsidiary liens and guarantees upon termination of a first lien revolving facility in November 2018. Under the SAPSA, consenting note holders agree to support the debtor's sale process, provide dip financing in the absence of a third-party lender, and provide a carve-out from sale proceeds for payment of certain administrative and priority claims. In exchange, the debtors agree that the subsidiary liens are valid and agree to reaffirm the subsidiary guarantees and to pay the fees and expenses of the consenting note holder professionals. A hearing on the SAPSA motion will be held July 2nd. At the Cloud Peak Debtor's second-day hearing, Lauren Kanzer of Vincent & Elkins noted that an ad hoc group of shareholders had made a formal request to the U.S. trustee for the appointment of an equity committee. She stated that as of Wednesday morning, the USD had declined to appoint an equity committee in the case, but indicated that the USD had rejected the request without prejudice. On Thursday afternoon, Judge Gross entered an order approving Cloud Peak's proposed bid procedures with revisions as discussed at Wednesday's hearing. The debtors have until June 21st to file an assigned contract schedule and cure notice. 
Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, last Wednesday, the official committee of retired employees of the government of Puerto Rico, also known by its Spanish acronym COR, announced a tentative agreement with the PROMESA Oversight Board on the treatment of retirement benefits, an eventual Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. The proposed agreement will be included in the Commonwealth's Plan of Adjustment under Title III of PROMESA, which will be subject to the vote of impaired creditors at a later date that will be announced by the federal court. The retiree committee in a statement said that the, the agreement will substantially improve the treatment of retirement benefits of 167,000 retired government employees, as compared with the terms proposed by the Oversight Board in the latest fiscal plan approved on May 9th. Pensioners receiving below $1,200 monthly will receive no cuts at all. Other retirees will not receive reductions of more than 8.5%. Reacting to the deal, top officials of the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosseo criticized the accord, reiterating the administration's stance opposing any and all pension cuts. But the PROMESA Oversight Board, quote, welcomed the development and called the agreement an integral part of the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. During Wednesday's omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Martin Bienenstock of Proskauer Rose, on behalf of the PROMESA Oversight Board, said the board hopes to file a Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment within 30 days. He acknowledged that there are still a lot of, quote, moving parts in developing the plan, and that negotiations are ongoing with numerous constituencies. Bienenstock said the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment would contemplate paying general obligation bondholder recoveries out of certain property tax and clawback revenue over which GO creditors have asserted liens. Bienenstock also said he's hopeful that tentative agreement with Sincora Guarantee and the government parties would enable Sincora to become a party to the PREPA restructuring support agreement. He said that he hoped that would move forward in the next few days. Also during the hearing, Judge Laura Taylor Swain expressed concern over the lack of, quote, an opening roadmap in connection with the Rule 9019 motion seeking approval of the settlements embodied in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority Restructuring Support Agreement. The court suggested that a potential, quote, fundamental flaw in the disclosure process for the Rule 9019 motion, citing a lack of sufficient information to make a prima facie case and, quote, thorough analysis of the legal issues necessary to underpin a 9019 order. In addition, the court directed the parties to present new opening factual declarations and a supplemental legal memorandum explaining that further legal and factual positions are needed to provide a, quote, potential pathway for approval of the Rule 9019 motion. Judge Swain also dismissed a motion by certain ERS bondholders to vacate the appointment of the UCC or change its composition. The court adjourned until the July omnibus hearing a separate motion by the UCC seeking to establish procedures related to its omnibus objection to all claims asserted against the ERS based on the roughly $3.1 billion of outstanding bonds issued by ERS in 2008. The Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority also announced Thursday afternoon in a press release that it has entered into a restructuring support agreement with the Golden Tree Asset Management, holder of more than two-thirds of the outstanding Puerto Rico Industrial Development Company, or PRIDCO, revenue bonds. The RSA contemplates a consensual financial restructuring of the PRIDCO bonds, which total $165 million in principal and accrued interest, according to AFAF, through a qualifying modification under Title VI of PROMISA. 
As part of the agreement, bondholders would accept a principal reduction of their PRIDCO bonds, which will be exchanged at an upfront exchange ratio of 94%, a maturity extension, and a two-year moratorium on payments of principal. Other top stories this week were Judge Montali declares FERC decision announcing concurrent jurisdiction unenforceable in bankruptcy. J.C. Penney liquidity likely sufficient for current fiscal year, even if vendors tighten terms significantly. Serta Simmons' first quarter adjusted EBITDA slumps 35% year-over-year to $45 million. Net sales declined 12.4% to $576.2 million. And now here's Angelo Thalassinos with The Week Ahead. Hello again, credit market fans and enthusiasts. Congrats goes to artists Nelly and Drake as their respective hometowns won the Stanley Cup and the NBA championship this past week. It goes to show it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. And before we dive into the week ahead, the Rurik family would be remiss to not welcome the Honorable John T. Dorsey to the Delaware bankruptcy bench. Judge Dorsey was sworn in on June 11th, and this will be his first full week on the bench after practicing for 28 years in Wilmington, Delaware at Young Conaway, most recently, and Richards, Leighton, and Finger. Welcome, Judge Dorsey. We look forward to seeing and hearing you in action. This week starts the flurry of activity, including a number of restructuring events carrying over from last week. Specifically, stable permeance forbearance with holders of over 75% of its existing senior notes was scheduled to expire on June 14th, and three June 15 coupon payments were due for the following energy companies. Approach Resources on its 7% senior notes due 2021, EP Energy on its 6 and 3 8 unsecured notes due 2023, and Sanchez Energy on its seven and three quarters senior notes due 2021. To start the week, Judge Marvin Isger is scheduled to rule from the bench on the confirmation of the Exco Resources Plan, and Judge Robert Drain will preside over an omnibus hearing in the Windstream Chapter 11 cases. The forbearance agreement between Blackhawk Mining and term loan lenders is set to expire on Monday. Activity picks up on Tuesday as Legacy Reserves is anticipated to file a Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas after entering to an RSA last week. PetSmart is scheduled to report fiscal first quarter earnings and the L Brands tender offer reaches its early tender deadline. Tend last week, PetSmart subsidiary Chewy started trading on the New York Stock Exchange and closed its first day of trading at $34.99 after starting trading at $22 a share. In the courtroom, PHI will proceed with its disclosure statement hearing after filing amended plan documents incorporating its settlement with the UCC, and Fuse Media is scheduled to proceed with a combined plan disclosure statement hearing after it also resolved objections with the UCC in that case. Also on Tuesday, a UCC formation meeting in New York is scheduled in the Chapter 11 cases of the Fusion Connect debtors. Midweek, PetSmart will hold a conference call related to its release of fiscal first quarter earnings, the Sable Permian Exchange offer is scheduled to expire, and the Vistra Tender offer reaches its early tender deadline. Also on Wednesday, the Empire Generating Debtors are scheduled for second-day hearing in White Plains, and a UCC formation meeting is scheduled in Wilmington in the Ensys Chapter 11 cases. Then the week includes an omnibus hearing in the Sears Chapter 11 cases and a second-day hearing in the Bristow Chapter 11 cases, both on Thursday. On Friday, the extended bid deadline for the Ditech debtors. And to end the week, on Saturday, June 22nd, the Approach Resources Limited Forbearance Agreement is scheduled to terminate. That's all from me, folks. But as always, stay tuned to Reorg for the latest developments. Thanks, Angelo. Now we'll turn it over to Mark and Andrew 
who will speak on monotronics. Thanks, Karen. So I'm here with Andrew Sung, Distressed Debt Analyst, and we're going to talk about monotronics uh, today. Also, it's owned by Ascent Capital, which is another name that uh, some people might know. Security, uh, it's a home security company. They have uh, $1.8 billion in debt, a billion of that. Um, this is a secured term loan, 180 million uh, revolver, rest uh, unsecured. Notes, uh, this is a company that we've spoken about for quite some time. Andrew, you had launched on it uh, well over a year ago. Company's been working on, um, or we had learned at Rior, company's been working on uh, this uh, or a restructuring uh, proposal f- with uh, with their stakeholders for quite some time. There is even a uh, a case with their parent company, Ascent, that we had uh, covered a, a while back, um, which uh, which has since been uh, resolved. So, without all that out of the way, uh, the company did release a restructuring support agreement um, May, which contemplates a, uh, a a bankruptcy, something that we've been waiting for uh, for quite some time. So, Andrew, why don't you? Tell us about uh, about that plan. Sure. So the uh, the plan uh, contemplates uh, Monotronics filing for Chapter Eleven uh, with a petition milestone date of June thirtieth, and the plan currently has support of uh, I believe eighty three percent of term loan lenders and over seventy percent of uh, senior note holders. Um, so just at a high level, um, what the plan of reorganization is going to look like or what the RSA contemplates uh, going basically from top to bottom in the capital structure. Uh, the revolver, uh, which you had mentioned is $181 million in principal amount, uh, will be rendered unimpaired, uh, paid down in full from proceeds of a new $245 million dip facility which will be provided by KKR and some pre-petition uh, credit agreement lenders. Uh, upon exit, that dip facility will convert to a new uh, $295 million exit facility. Uh, moving down to the senior secured term loan, which is about $1.1 billion in principle, um, they're going to get treatment, uh, a mixture of cash, equity, uh, reorganized equity, and a take-back term loan uh, that, at least on day one, uh, for the contemplated plan value, would render it unimpaired. Um, so that uh, consideration consists of $150 million of cash, which is proceeds from a rights offering to be contributed by uh, the senior note holders, uh, $100 million of equitization which is coming from a crossholder group. So there's some term loan lenders that own uh, $100 million of senior secure term loan and an unspecified amount of notes that have agreed to equitize their term loan claim in exchange for about 25% of the equity of reorganized monotronics. Uh, And then the remainder, uh, $822.5 million uh, of the term loan will convert into a take-back exit term loan facility. Uh, and then the uh, senior notes, 585 million principal outstanding, have an option of basically either getting getting cash now or re- reorganized equity. Um, so the cash payout would be two and a half percent of the principal amount and accrued interest, or they can get 18% of new common stock by equitizing their claim plus additional shares through a rights offering in which they would uh, have to put about 177 million of new money into the company. And then lastly, uh, Ascent Capital Group common stockholders. Um, so moving back a bit, um, Ascent Capital Group is a holding company that their primary asset is its 100% ownership of Monotronics. Uh, and they also have some cash on the balance sheet as well. Uh, so 
Ascent Capital Group, the plan contemplates them contributing $23 million of cash into reorganized monotronics in, in exchange for 5.82% of the new common stock. Uh, and that would be predicated upon a merger of Ascent into monotronics. Great. So um, let's let's go into the, the the plan and and you know what do you think things are worth? You had mentioned one of the classes, the term loan um, being unimpaired. Now, I know that's a uh, it's a legal uh, definition goes with the plan. Depends, uh, you know, will dictate who votes, who doesn't vote. But you know, when in actuality, um, impairment, unimpairment. Uh, if you're not getting cash. Right, and you're getting securities instead. Uh, sometimes, uh, what you get uh, might ne- not necessarily feel like unimpairment, um, and that's what you that's what you go into, and that's what I found particularly interesting about your article, talking about um, what uh, what what a plan value might be, and and what is used to cut this um, this plan versus what are things actually worth, and uh, that's what we're going to discuss here today. But first. First, if you could uh, to set it up, if you could discuss the company and, and how you look at it, uh, I know that there's a um, you've you've spoken a lot in the past about cash flows here, and there's almost a trade off between cash flow and and growth. Um, there's a difference that you've um, that that you've mentioned between a uh, large difference between EBITDA and and cash flow here, and how much they spend in their business will dictate um, whether the company uh, grows or whether or not they um, they they sort of unwind and and bleed it for for cash. So if you could go through those things, yeah. Uh, so just backing up and talking about the business model as a whole quickly, um, you know, it's Monotronics is one of the largest security alarm monitoring companies in North America with about nine hundred thousand. And, uh, subscribers as of the end of the first quarter. Um, their subscriber base has actually declined in each of the past 15 fiscal quarters. Um, basically, it's a function that they've been unable to acquire new subscribers to replace their annual, annual attrition rates in the mid-teens. Uh, they're seeing competition from larger competitors such as ADT and Vivint and new market entrants in the a DIY space like Simply Safe or Amazon-owned Ring, which I'm sure we've all seen those ads on the internet. Um their business model, uh, they provide security alarm monitoring to primarily to domestic customers. And these uh, alarm monitoring agreements are generally contracts of about three years. And given that annual attrition rates in the industry are typically north of 10%, um, as you see in both their competitors, ADT and Vivint, uh, you have to replace these canceled accounts with new accounts in a cost-efficient manner uh, in order to maintain and grow the business. And if you can't, you're going to have the dynamic of uh, a subscriber base that's declining like uh, Monotronics has seen. Uh, so the big driver here is what are your costs to acquire subscribers? Um, and in Monotronics case, it's been historically very elevated where the upfront cost to acquire a new customer is about 35 times the recurring monthly revenue acquired. So in, in simpler terms, uh, their break even on uh, the upfront uh, upfront expense of acquiring a new customer is about three years, or it's about the same length of an in- initial contract term. So they're very heavily reliant on customers re-signing and um, you know, re-upping their contract after initial expiry. Um, 
they acquire these uh, subscribers through two channels. Uh, one is called the dealer channel and one is the direct consumer channel. Uh, one thing that's unique about the dealer channel is they outsource the selling and installation of, uh, of alarm systems to a network of about 300 independent dealers. And those dealers don't retain the alarm monitoring contracts, but instead they sell these contracts to Monotronics. And Monotronics has to basically pay for these contracts all up front. And they capitalize these contracts on their balance sheet at cost, meaning that that associated upfront cash outlay is included in the cash flow statement, not on the income statement. And so the way we think about this is it's really an extension of capital expenditures uh, because you're replenishing uh, the primary asset of the business that uh, really needs to be uh, it's a recurring expense that needs to be made in order, in order to maintain your business. And then just quickly on the uh, direct consumer channel, they offer DIY home security and professional monitoring, um, acquiring subscribers through online sales and call center sales representatives, uh, where the subscriber acquisition costs in the direct consumer channel are actually expensed um, through the income statement as most of these expenses relate to sales and marketing. So to going towards uh, cash flows and thinking about that, uh, to answer your, your second question, um, given that the majority of their subscriber acquisition costs are actually capitalized and a smaller portion is expensed, uh, EBITDA does not account for a recurring and a necessary expense to maintain and replenish the assets of the business. So the way we looked at, at it is we think that free cash flow is a much better metric, uh, which is why in our analysis, we utilized a DCF analysis rather than just simply taking EBITDA and looking at comps and putting a multiple and assumed range of multiples on there. Um, obviously, DCF uh, has its faults, but we think it gets a lot closer to the pin with respect to valuation than simply an EBITDA multiple versus comps. And you know, furthermore, just looking at utilizing uh, free cash flow and valuation, uh, it allows for modeling various scenarios with respect to either improving or worsening the, subs the subscriber metrics, which is really the primary driver behind the company, either continuing to burn cash or being able to eventually generate cash while growing. Um, so in our analysis, we used sort of three scenarios, one being the company is able to grow, the second one being the company doesn't improve at all. And the third one being that they simply just turn off subscriber acquisitions and let the company run, go into gradual runoff mode uh, over the next you know, handful of years. And the interesting conclusion from that is uh, if they just stop acquiring subscribers, they're actually able to generate uh, substanti substantial levels of cash flow in the near term. Obviously, their subscriber base quickly diminishes, but uh, the way we model this out, we think this scenario actually produces a better outcome than if they were simply to continue along uh, at their current uh, run rate. And and that is uh, the, that cash flow determined from uh, the the growth mode or the non runoff mode um, that uses current metrics uh, that that are there, right? That's right. So so that middle case of they just sort of hum along at the current rate of operations. We sort of just look at the last three or four fiscal years and assume some sort of a normalized rate of attrition, uh, subscriber acquisitions per year, uh, and recurring monthly revenue, and, and a creation multiple as well. And so uh, 
when you model that out, those assumptions, you're able to uh, pretty linearly uh, back into what their subscriber base looks like over time, and then hence what their revenue looks like over time, and then obviously th their expenses, it, when you assume some sort of creation multiple, you're able to back into not only their OPEX, but also their capital expenditures. And it make, that makes sense also, um, because things... I know the companies want to, uh, you know, improve some of these metrics, and they have plans to improve the metrics. But this is certainly an industry where competition seems to be increasing, uh, not decreasing. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see how um, we'll see how they perform. And so you go through the, um, the the choices here by the the company. Do they want to? Uh, milk it for cash? Do they want to uh, grow and invest more money? Uh, but what's interesting, what you lay out about this plan is there's a lot of choices the um, the stakeholders have as well. Um, you have, you know, in a couple of um, in a couple of the classes, you have a choice between cash. You have a choice between um, recovery in equity, and um, you know, even on the um, on the, the the lender part, there's crossholders um, that that are there. You, you mentioned that a portion of that's going to be equitized. Uh, those lenders are making a choice to uh, you know instead of accepting um, part of um, you know, instead of accepting recovery on a senior claim, they're uh, choosing to equitize uh, you know some of their stakes. So uh, actually, at first, if you could explain those you know few dynamics that I mentioned and go into the detail um, on that plan in terms of um, the, the the cash versus equity and. And, um, and, and what those crossholders are doing, and then we'll go into those choices. Sure. So the uh, the reorganized capital structure, um, as contemplated by the RSA, uh, is a uh, $295 million uh, first out um, exit, uh, exit facility, which consists of $145 million of revolver and uh, $150 million of term loan. And then uh, subordinate to that would be the take-back exit term loan facility, which the pre-petition term loan will roll up into, and that would be $822.5 million of principal. Um, and so the, the plan contemplates about $990 million of debt outstanding uh, at exit, uh, which uh, implies a partial draw of the, of the exit revolver. Um, and... Uh, what that and when you sort of look at the equity splits as far as um, the amount that the rights offering is putting in and the percentage of equity that they're getting, you get an implied plan value of just under 1.4 billion and an implied reorganized monotronics equity value of about 395 million. Um, and so when you're looking at the choices that uh, some of the stakeholders have, obviously, um, any sort of conclusions about analysis are going to be highly dependent on um, on assumptions around valuation uh, and sort of the conclusions that we came to our range of valuations of reorganized monotronics using these various scenarios that we had outlined uh, is in fact lower a lower range than this contemplated 1.4 billion of, of value. Um, but you know when you're thinking about your choice of do I take cash today or do I um, you know take the optionality of potentially uh, owning equity in a business that could turn things around and grow in the future, your consideration is really, you know, do you believe that this business can grow? Can they improve their operating metrics? Uh, management had provided uh, a, a series of projections that uh, that do materially improve um, operations from from their current rate. Uh, it's just that it, we, we currently haven't seen that. So um, you, you certainly have to weigh uh, what you believe the probability is that they're able to, to, to in fact, achieve that. So 
Just going into what the pre-petition stakeholders will get on the back end, uh, we mentioned what the RSA contemplates, but um, with respect to the equitizing term loan lenders, um, what we found was that um, that equitization only really in our high case scenario would that equity that would that equity have any sort of recovery value to where we believe that they would in fact be better off uh, they would have been better off in an absolute priority recovery scenario or uh, considerations similar to the non-equitizing senior secure terminal lenders where you're getting cash plus uh, take back exit terminal facility um, and with respect to the note holders, um, what we found was that in absolute priority, we believe that there was actually uh, a likelihood that there was no recovery. But as contemplated by the RSA, given that they have to put new money into the business, uh, we thought that the recoveries would in fact be negative. And so our conclusion there was just considering the question of whether they would be better off just taking two and a half percent of cash as contemplated by the RSA rather than uh, putting new money into a business that, um, you know, our analysis showed could potentially, might struggle to, in fact, um, justify valuation more than the plan value uh, suggests. Um, And then just that last part of uh, applying that similar logic to the Ascent Capital Group shareholders who have to contribute cash in order to receive uh, equity of reorganized monotronics we also see that Ascent Capital Group shareholders getting um, no recovery in an absolute priority scenario. But again, having to contribute $23 million of cash, uh, we see that as, as negative recovery uh, in that um, just given that our, our um, contemplated uh, enterprise values is lower than sort of the contemplated plan value. So uh, given that there's cash currently on the balance sheet at Ascent, um, our analysis considers the question of whether um, Ascent should, in fact, vote to merge into Monotronics or vote against the merger and simply own equity in an entity that has 25 to 30 million of cash sitting on its balance sheet. And, um, you know, just I wanted to go into Ascent um, and talked about the merger and why they are sort of where they are separate. Um, first, I wanted to uh, share with everyone listening your range of, uh, of asset values. You talked about uh, DCS, but you also, um, I thought um, on the top end of the range, did a very clever analysis looking at if um, a competitor were to actually buy them and use similar multiples that um, Monotronics uses to buy its uh, customers what that would imply and uh, you still actually came up with a um, a number that was that was lower than the implied um, uh, implied plan value yeah go ahead. Yeah, that's that's right I um, I contemplated you know what would this uh, basically the the primary asset of monotronics is its subs- subscriber base or you know you can think about it their recurring monthly revenue so um, that certainly has value to a potential um, acquirer or a competitor and so what we tried to do is think about what might that value actually be uh, might, what might that fair value actually be and so uh, just using ADT as an example just given uh, they have more scale they're larger than monotronics so in theory an acquisition could occur we're not saying it would but um, if in fact it did how might they look at it uh, as far as a base case Um, and so really just back of the envelope calculations uh, took approximately uh, you know 900,000 subscribers of monotronics at about $45 of RMR and uh, you get about 40.8 million of recurring monthly revenue 
and then we took ADT's creation multiple times that 40.8 million and you get about 1.2 billion. So really what we're trying to answer is what would it cost ADT to acquire 40.8 million of recurring monthly revenue and using ADT's um, subscriber acquisition costs, you come to around that 1.2 billion number. So again, uh, that's a very rough back of the envelope calculation, but we think it's sort of a a decent starting point. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, So going back to Ascent, uh, you touched on it. uh, The the plan contemplates a merger of Ascent and and Monotronics. Uh, if you could just provide some, I know it's it's relatively small. I think you said twenty three million in cash that they own right now. But if you could provide a some background on uh, Ascent, how they have that, uh, why they have that stub piece of cash, and um, why is Ascent different than than Monotronics? Sure. So um, you know, Ascent uh, was previously a, a subsidiary of Discovery Communications, which was a subsidiary of Liberty Media. So, um, interestingly, uh, John Malone and a former director of Ascent uh, own about ninety-five percent of the Series B uh, common shares of Ascent, which has ten times the voting shares of the Series A, which is the uh, the the one that's commonly uh, quoted on, on on the public markets. Um, so. The assets of Ascent are, it's 100% equity in Monotronics, and they also have cash on the balance sheet as well. Um, And uh, several months ago, they had uh, a convertible note issue of about 95 million, which um, through some sort of litigation and a tender offer transaction, they were able to take out those converts at a discount to par value. And so if you look at the pro forma balance sheet of Ascent, you really have about 32 million of cash or so, and about 2 million of total liabilities, which suggests about 30 million of net cash value or equity value, um, just sitting at uh, an entity that has no operations um, to where, that's sort of where we pose the question as to whether Ascent current shareholders would be better off not merging into Monotronics and simply voting against the merger and through you know some sort of vote or what have you, um, looking to get that cash distributed to to shareholders. Great. Um, so this this has been uh, it's been really interesting, Andrew. Thank you, thank you so much uh, for all our listeners. If you want to read Andrew's art, uh, article, uh, his analysis, please reach out to your salesperson. That's it for us this week. Karen, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Karen Lung.